I view my job more so as almost the conductor of an orchestra. And so my job is to ensure like we're hitting all the right notes and everyone's playing the same song. If you know, digital and brand are playing two different songs, it's not gonna sound very good to the marketplace. I'm Pep Lau. I don't do fluff. I don't do filler. I don't do emojis. What I do is study winners in B2B SaaS because I wanna know how much is strategy, how much is luck, and how do they win? This week, Lindsay Bayek, CMO at Pluralsight, a leading e-learning platform for tech skills. In this episode, Lindsay breaks down her key lessons learned as a CMO. We discuss metrics you need to pay attention to, the importance of words, and why go-to-market is a team sport. Let's get into it. You are a CMO that has a product marketing background, which I think is unusual. Uh, do you think this is the... The model for the future or a fluke? <laughs> uh, I definitely don't think it's a fluke. Uh, I think historically there's been kind of two flavors of CMOs, especially in the last maybe decade or so. There have been really hardcore digital marketing CMOs that different CEOs or exec teams wanted to hire because they thought that was like the the thing you had to crack to be good at marketing was... You have to be really knowledgeable on digital. And then I also think you've got CMOs who have that product marketing background. So I don't think it's a fluke, ultimately. And I think the product marketing CMO is bringing more of that market landscape, competitive landscape, strategic positioning sort of background and lens where maybe they're not the you know tactician who's great at all aspects of marketing, but they're bringing that more strategic lens to the business. The average tenure for for a CMO, um, they say it's eighteen months, and you've been significantly longer at your role now. What's the difference between the CMOs whose tenure is long versus those that depart early? I think there's a a lot of different factors. Sometimes it can be the circumstances, right? So it can be a tumultuous time in the business or maybe not a great fit of the CMO with, with the executive leadership team. But I think a lot of it, especially these days in the economic climate that we're in, comes down to CMOs being able to articulate the impact that marketing is having on the business and being able to say, hey, look, here's the outcomes that we're driving. Here's how we're moving the company strategy forward. Here's how we're, you know, fostering brand advocates. And then ultimately, here's how we're driving impact on revenue or bookings growth. There's a very popular saying these days that, you know, life's too short to work for a CEO that does not get marketing. What's your point of view on this? Completely agree with that. I think there's definitely folks out there who just maybe haven't been exposed to great marketers, haven't found thought partners that help them. No CEO, unless they have a marketing background, is ever going to be an expert. But if they can understand the impact marketing makes on the business and they can understand why marketing is so important, especially these days to driving growth, yeah, then I think you're set up for a healthy partnership. And if you don't have that or can't get it, if you have CEOs out there that think that marketing is spending a bunch of money on ads and nothing more, yeah, it's probably not going to work super well. Most CEOs aren't expert marketers, but a CEO who understands marketing will open doors for CMOs to move faster, experiment more creatively, and ultimately see better results. 
So much of running a successful company comes down to communication and collaboration. So how do you get your CEO on board with something that they don't understand the importance of? Dave Gerhardt, a former CMO at Privy, once asked Drift, David Cancel. As the CEO, how do you want to be managed up? Because I think so much of the job in marketing is getting on the same page with the CEO. How do you want us to work with you? And Dave replied. The idea for me is that it's for me to understand the way that person thinks, which is, you know, like specific to my personality. I have to understand how they think, how they make decisions. Doesn't mean that I, I agree with them. It's okay, I could totally disagree with them, but they have a logical framework that they're using for how they make decisions so I can understand where they're coming from. If that's true, then it lets me have a large level of trust and like skip through all the details I don't need to be involved in. But like for me, it has to do more with trusting them on the creative side and knowing that we're aligned from a vision standpoint. Your CEO does not need to weigh in on the minutia of every marketing decision, but they do need to understand the big picture and be aligned on the vision. That starts with trust built from effective communication of process and intent. So Pluralsight is quite big, you know, post-IPO, 2,000-something employees. So I'm curious, so what are the metrics that you as a CMO monitor? What are the results or the marketing impact that you communicate then to your peers? So the top things that we look at in my org are marketing-originated pipeline, marketing-originated bookings, and then we're a little bit unique from maybe some other B2B SaaS companies where marketing owns a revenue line for a specific portion of our business. So those are really the top three metrics that I'm measured against, that my team and I drive towards, and that I communicate to our executive team and the board. Tell me more about the, the metrics that really matter versus the, the marketing metrics that are more like vanity or nice. Look, I'm a big believer in you should measure a lot of things. Different teams within marketing need to measure things like, yeah, I'm going to say website traffic, right? Like you do need to know those things. But ultimately, to your other point on CMOs that stick and have longer tenures, I think what's most important to a CEO or CFO or board is that marketing's driving things that move the needle for the whole business. So for us, when we do our planning every year, we align on a marketing originated pipeline number, which we measure through our attribution model. So we use a very simple last touch attribution model to help understand how much pipeline is coming from marketing, how much pipeline is coming from business development, sales, and partner. And it's very, very simple. And that's intentional because we want to be able to explain it to any sales rep, any sales leader, like anyone in the business should be able to understand how marketing gets air quotes credit for the pipeline that we generate. And then the secondary metric that we care deeply about is called marketing originated bookings. And we care about this metric because it's it's the qualifier in pipeline. If we're generating a ton of pipeline and none of it's converting into bookings, probably not very high quality pipe, right? So if we're generating high quality pipeline and it's turning into bookings, it tells us we're spending money on the right things, we're driving the right messages into the marketplace, and ultimately we're helping sales close deals, which is what we're, you know, ultimately what we're here to do. I saw uh, the CMO of HubSpot last week, Kip 
uh, talk about metrics that he cares about. And he said, you know, well, funnel optimization is nice. You know, you, you know, increase the conversion in this step by whatever. Really, it's just, uh, it's, it's Mickey Mouse game because the big game is distribution and driving the people into the pipeline or the funnel to begin with. Well, I think that's true for marketers, right? I think it's a stuff that we look at is you're right. Are we driving traffic? Are we growing our audiences? That That's what marketers care about. But if you're telling your CFO that you're growing traffic, I don't know if they're going to care that much, <laughs> right? I mean, maybe they will, and that would be lovely. But ultimately, I think CMOs or marketing leaders need to understand what metrics do you and your teams care about that are leading indicators like what Kip said. Hey, how am I growing my audiences? How am I growing traffic, subscribers, followers, leads, those types of things? And then marketers know how that is then fueling those business outcomes. But to different audiences like your board, you need to be able to say, hey, I'm actually moving the needle on growth and not just reporting out kind of hand-wavy metrics like marketing teams did however long ago, like just, hey, we delivered X number of leads. So, right, it's the first rule of marketing, know your audience. So you gotta be able to communicate different messages to different audiences, even if they're internal. As an organization grows, breakdowns in communication can muddy the waters when it comes to alignment on directionality and goals. Everyone wants budget from CEOs, CMOs, the board of directors. But then talk about esoteric nerd metrics the C-level doesn't care about. What they will care about is customer and revenue retention, LTV, pipeline dollars, and so forth. To get buy-in from across the company on projects your team cares about, you need to be able to communicate their value using metrics and signposts everyone understands. As HubSpot CMO Kip Bodner says, internal functionality depends on clear goals and common incentives. Humans are incentive-based creatures, right? Incentives and alignment around goals and incentives fix everything. If you have a problem collaborating, it is because you have competing goals or you have competing incentives against those goals. And so job one is to get very clear on those goals and make sure the goals are, are aligned between whether it be marketing and product, marketing and sales. We talked about attribution. Once you have your SLA, your attribution, all of that set up, it's actually very clear. The incentives are aligned. And then you just come up with a check-in and, and like communication process around that. Most people fail because they don't set that foundation. And instead, they just go and kind of over-index on the relationship building side, which is really important. But the relationship part can be secondary if you've got the right foundation and infrastructure uh, around goals and accountability. You've been at Pluralsight for six, seven years. So you, you've seen quite a bit the growth over the years. So if you think back of those moments where Pluralsight experienced, let's say, faster than average growth, what was happening on the inside? Was it like successful campaigns you deployed or just market timing or what, what was going on when you experienced uh, significant growth? I think some of that was, you know, there are a couple different points in time that that happened. And I'll give you one example uh, that focuses on positioning and messaging. And so there was a point in time right before I joined the company when we referred to ourselves as hardcore developer training. Do you think most adults, specifically engineers, like training? You went to an engineer and you were like, you need to do some training. No, I think no. 
Probably not, right? And so anyway, so we described ourselves that way, which is accurate, right? It's technically accurate. We we do training. But when I joined, one of the first things that we did is a bunch of market research. I joined as a VP of product marketing. We did a bunch of market research, kind of research, customer research. What we came back with was the thing that our target audience really cared about. So these are engineers, VPs of engineering, was the skills of their teams. What they really cared about was, do my teams have the skills to build the products that we're trying to build? And so we actually, after all of this research, changed the way that we talked about what we did from hardcore developer training to technology skills. We're in the business of upskilling technical teams. And that part of that pivot, along with some of the product improvements that we made, really drove a lot of very fast growth. But it was about articulating the problem that we solved using the outcomes that our customers and market really wanted most. And in this case, you were communicating to to the, the team lead, the economic buyer who bought it for their teams, as opposed to the learner. Exactly. Yes. And that was part of the shift as well. So it was aligning the needs of that economic buyer with how we communicated what our product is. Too many marketers think they're doing positioning and messaging work, but are in fact creating taglines and fluffy content and then rolling it out in a half-baked manner. The key to your positioning is to get clear on which problems you solve and for whom. It's kind of like picking one thing to be famous for, and that one thing also determines who cares about that. Pluralsight did it right. Through gathering buyer intelligence, they learned what really mattered to the buyer, the outcomes they really cared about, and then positioned their product through that lens. Tell me more about uh, some other milestones for uh, messaging and positioning and how it's evolved. Uh, you talked about this one big shift. Uh, have, have there been any other milestones along the way? You know, I think I, there, there were a couple of, of iterations in there. So we really went from training to tech learning was the exact phrase that we used. And then ultimately we got to tech skills and upskilling. And so there were a couple iterations in there where we, you know, we're learning and testing and getting more and more clear on the language that would resonate. And so if you ever want a case study on great product messaging <laughs> and positioning, we got warmer every time, but it wasn't quite until we got to this skills language that we really nailed what our buyers were looking to accomplish. Tell me how you landed on this insight. Was it you did a bunch of customer interviews, surveys? How did you, you know, find that language? Yeah. So look, I'm a fan of surveys. I think they can be really insightful, but ultimately it was a bunch of customer interviews asking buyers, why did you buy? What are you looking to solve? What is it that we uniquely help you with? And so a lot of those qualitative interviews helped us land on that language. And I will say that I'm a big fan of interviewing customers or prospective customers and just using exactly the language that they use and putting that on your homepage and in your marketing materials. Like just use the language 
that your audience uses. Don't overthink it, I guess is what I would say. Customer research is amazing if you use it right. You have to understand what it can do and not. Using it to mirror language that resonates with the customer, as Lindsay says, is powerful. However, it won't tell you what to do or how to differentiate your business or how to innovate. In interviews, people talk about things they already know and have seen before. They want better and slightly improved. That's why innovative stuff does so poorly in focus groups and surveys. Strong user research will tell you what elements of your brand, style and identity your customers and fans really like, what resonates or what falls flat. That will help you refine your brand and positioning, identify what makes a difference and get rid of the fluffy stuff. But customer research is no substitute to a strong point of view. Be careful not to follow everything people say or you'll become just like everyone else. A marketing team at Pluralsight is pretty big, I imagine. How, how many people in the marketing work? Yeah, we're a little over 150 people. And how is that structured into teams? I'll just go through my direct reports. Maybe that's easiest. So I've got a VP of communications, a VP of marketing ops, an SVP of global demand and field, an SVP of brand, an SVP of integrated marketing, uh, and an SVP of digital and self-serve marketing. How are you juggling each of these teams and make sure that, you know, know, you know, that they're all aligned in terms of what they're trying to accomplish and, and so on? So all of my directs are total pros. They are all experts in their area, but they're all passionate about marketing and they challenge each other. They challenge me. We discuss and debate a lot. And I think building that team camaraderie is really a critical part to ensuring you've got a well-oiled marketing machine. I would also say that we do a lot of collaborative planning. And so we've got a lot of different processes built out around campaign planning, where teams are coming together, each from their respective functions, to ensure that as we're building out messages and campaigns, for the quarter, for the half, and for the year that we're all aligned and operating as one. I view my job more so as almost the conductor of an orchestra. And so my job is to ensure like we're hitting all the right notes and everyone's playing the same song. If you've got different, if you know, digital and brand are playing two different songs, it's not going to sound very good <laughs> to the marketplace. And so yeah, we have a lot of collaborative planning exercises to ensure all the all the teams are working together and then my directs and I are really assessing what's working, what's not, how can we drive closer alignment and collaboration across the teams. A team that both collaborates well and challenges you is a winning team. But how do you find these people? During the hiring process, you need to watch out for too high agreeableness. If they're like 80-90% agreeable, they're likely to be people pleasers and yes men. They are optimizing for being liked over getting to the best idea and not challenging stupidity. Too low on the agreeability scale and they're easy to get into conflicts. You don't want people like that. You want collaborators, but also challengers, disruptors. Here's former astronaut Garrett Reisman on why you should encourage your teams to challenge you. We all have a tendency to want to be reassured that we're on the right track. 
We want to hear nice things. But the problem is you can fall into a situation where you have groupthink or where your people who are very smart and, and especially skilled in certain areas know better, but they're afraid to tell you. And this is especially true if you demonstrate qualities of being vindictive, if you penalize people for speaking out or having a dissenting view, if you if you come down on them because you're you you think that it's that's causing inefficiencies or slowing you down, then people really clam up. And this is a very, very dangerous trap for a leader to fall into. And no matter how smart you are and how well you know what you're doing, you're gonna make a mistake at some point. And if there's nobody there to tell you that feels confident in telling you, uh, hey, just a second, boss, maybe we should rethink this, then that's that's extremely dangerous. You've said that go-to-market is a, is a team sport. Uh, can you tell me more about that? I think it's just really important, or at least one of the lessons that I've learned over the last few years is, at the end of the day, we're all here to drive growth. And if marketing comes up with a really clever campaign, it kind of doesn't matter if the incentives aren't aligned with business development and sales. No one go-to-market team can operate on an island. And so... You know, we had an instance at one point where marketing was aligned to driving pipeline, like I talked about earlier, and we had another team that did, had a very different set of metrics. And what that did is it caused friction. We didn't have aligned incentives. And then ultimately, this go-to-market engine wasn't quite humming the way that we wanted. And we needed to align incentives. And just ensure that all aspects of all different teams, marketing, biz, dev, and sales, we're all working in concert together. And I think it's just really important. Everyone kind of looks at their functions and just thinks, okay, if I do well with my piece of this, that's kind of it. I don't need to worry about anything else. But I think remembering no matter what seat you're sitting in, that all go-to-market teams have to work together if we're going to grow the business is really critical. Not everything is rosy at all times. Uh, so when you look back at your career at Pluralsight, what are some of the top mistakes or regrets that you could tell us about? Too many to list <laughs> and cover it in this podcast. But I will say, you know, I think in the last few years, we've been through a lot of change. And in the moment when you're in that change, feels like a lot. It can feel really stressful when you feel under the under pressure to deliver or, you know, if there's a big acquisition. And in those moments, as I reflect on them, I felt like that was all the change that I or my teams could absorb at that point in time. But looking back on it, I actually wish I would have been more aggressive on other key changes. I wish I would have made bigger changes in our work design sooner, where maybe I did kind of a half step. I wish I would have gone all the way. I wish, you know, there would have been some individuals that we'd parted ways with sooner. I wish we had some ideas we wanted to do with our, our brand strategy. I wish I would have pulled those forward maybe six months or a year. So I would say I wish I would have maybe accelerated change faster than I was comfortable with or thought was possible. So what are some of the strategies that have helped Lindsay and Pluralsight win? One, 
She focuses on metrics that matter. What's most important to a CEO or CFO or board is that marketing is driving things that move the needle for the whole business. Two, she understands the business impact of positioning and messaging. I'm a big fan of interviewing customers or prospective customers and just using exactly the language that they use and putting that on your homepage and in your marketing materials. Three, she understands that go-to-market is a team sport. We discuss and debate a lot, and I think building that team camaraderie is really a critical part to ensuring you've got a well-oiled marketing machine. One last takeaway from Lindsay. I think remembering no matter what seat you're sitting in, that all go-to-market teams have to work together if we're gonna grow the business is really critical. And that's how you win. I'm Pep Lab. For more tips on how to win, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening.